if you have a Bible with you, you can open it, turn it on, um, uh, slide it open, however you do it, to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible uh, today, that's okay. Uh, we do have, we'll have the words projected for you. Um, we, we do love to give away Bibles though, so there will be some Bibles that are available for free on the, on the table on your way out. So if you want to grab one of those and bring it back next week, we would love uh, to, to give that as a gift to you today. Uh, we are, uh, I'm preaching through a, a series in the, the letter to the Ephesians. It's a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. And um, the, way, the way we, our, our conviction is that we just preach the Bible here. Uh, we, so we go consecutively, pretty much verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, I'm just not, just not winsome enough to come up with like a ton of, you know, topical series or anything. We, we think that preaching the Bible is good enough. And so that's just what we do here. So um, if it's your first time doing that, uh, welcome to a, a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. Um, we are in Ephesians chapter 2, so if this is your first time, you're not, you're not jumping in too late, uh, you'll, you'll be able to catch up with our sermons that, that we're doing here. But we're in chapter 2 uh, this morning, and uh, I don't know, you know, we've all, we all have different backgrounds with, with the church and with Christianity, and so we come from, from, a, from a variety of places. But if you've been around Christianity very long at all, you'll know that there's, there's just a lot of confusion that surrounds it, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of terminology. You've got to have some insider lingo to understand a, a conversation. You kind of have, have to have some, you know, some, some themes and some terms, right? And sometimes, let's just be honest, it just gets confusing, right? I mean, sometimes it's like, what, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, what is it that we're saying we believe? Um, today's passage, the, ver- the first 10 verses of chapter 2 in Ephesians, is a, a beautiful summary of Christianity, of the good news about Jesus. And, and it does it in this beautiful way. It, it, it puts this very dark um, backdrop at the very beginning of, of the passage, and then, it, and then it shines the beauty of Christianity and the gospel and, and Jesus and everything that he came to do for us uh, together. And so, so today's passage is, is that. It is, it is the good news about Jesus in a nutshell. And so I hope to be very clear today about some things uh, of what it is, that, what it means to be a Christian. But let's, let's uh, read the, the passage today. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 in Ephesians going down through verse 10. This is, this is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we, we long to know you. And so, Father, we pray now that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts to receive it. There are some very difficult things that are revealed about us in this passage. So, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive them and that you would work through your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you've seen the television show Mythbusters. I forget what channel it's on. Am I going in and out on the sound? Uh, okay, if, if I am, maybe we can have some backup batteries. Um, the, the show Mythbusters is a show that uh, these, these two guys, they, they seek to reveal any uh, myths uh, scientifically, and, and they try to bust them, right? Like things from movies or things that we've heard about, rumors to be true. I mean, just random things, you know? Like uh, one I remember off, off the cuff here is, is, you know, if your car falls into a, a, a sea of water, a lake of water, and you, you, when is the best time to get out like do you open your door can the window break are you supposed to let it fill up and then get out you know all these things and they they test out the myths and then they they bust them and and prove many of them to to be not true uh i think i think there's some myths that kind of circle around christianity uh kind of the culture of christianity and and really it's it's the, the the wider culture that we live in in the world and, and a couple of those myths that I think this passage today is actually going to bust are, are, are these two. I, I think one of the myths that, that we, by and large, live by is that we think that the problem with the world is other people, right? We think that it's everybody else that's the problem, right? That's kind of how we function, this, this kind of this low-level suspicion that you're the reason that everything is wrong with the world, right? So there's that, there's that kind of myth, and, and I think this passage is going to going to bust that for us. Uh, another myth that many of us live and function by is that we think that we're all basically good people. Like, we're not really that bad. There, sure, there are evil people. There are Stalins and Hitlers, and there, there are evil people, but, but generally speaking, humanity's pretty good. We kind of function under that, under that belief. Well, this passage, I think, is going to bust, bust those myths all over the place for us. Um, the exact opposite uh, is actually true. Uh, it, kind of before reading the passage, I mentioned how around Christianity, there's, there's sometimes terminology that we use and we throw around, and we don't, we're not always very clear about what we mean by it. And, and one of those terms that we throw around, if, if you've been around the church at all, is, is we talk about being saved. We've all heard that, right? Like, when were you saved? Or what, what does it mean to be saved as a Christian? What, what are we saved from? Like, what are, what are we talking about when we talk about saved? I think we, we use that term very loosely, and I think we all have different meanings by it. And so um, I'm going to kind of use that as the baseline from this passage of, um, uh, for understanding what it means to be a Christian. What, 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 are, we, what are we saying when we, when we say we're, we're saved? Um, if you've never really heard the good news about Jesus in a way that utterly broke you, like, like made you undone, like end of yourself, you've never really heard the gospel. And so my hope and my desire today is that, that you might even get a glimpse of that today, the, the good news about Jesus. And so here's, here's the big idea that I want us to take away from the passage today, and it's this, that we are saved from God, 
by God and for God. Okay? So we are saved from God, by God, for God. Pretty, pretty simple. I'll just use those to, three kind of hooks to, to hang my sermon on today. So let's first talk about what it means to be saved from God. Do you know what a, a really true friend uh, is, and, or at least for me, a one, one aspect of a good friend is somebody who will tell you the things that you don't want to hear, right? Like, like if I'm sitting across after lunch from a friend and they don't tell me I have spinach in my teeth, and then I go home and I find out that I've been conversing this whole time with food in my teeth, like, I don't know if you're a good friend or not. Like, I, I just, there's some suspicion there. So, like, if we have lunch and I have food in my teeth, just tell me. Tell me the way it is. You know, friends tell you when, when that shirt just, it's not working for you, right? Like, friends tell you the things that you don't necessarily want to hear, but you need to hear them, right? Well, the Bible's a friend like that. The, the Bible, and today's passage in particular, it's telling us something that we don't really want to hear, but man, do we need to hear what this passage has for us today. You see, the Bible tells us things about ourselves that we don't want to believe, things about ourselves that, that we actually refuse and, and deny to believe. Um, let's just really dive in, and I, I really want to just look at the language of what, what the Bible's telling us about ourselves. Um, Paul does not mince words here. Like, I, I don't know how much of the Bible you've read, but the Apostle Paul is not really wimpy. Like, he, he, he tells it like it is, and he tells it like it is here. I mean, even if you just look at the passage, in, in verse 1, he jumps right in, and he says, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I mean, there, there is little language that could be more clear about the condition that Paul's talking about when he uses the word death. Right? We, we all have a category for that, dead. He didn't say you were in poor shape. He didn't say you were limping. He said, he said you were dead. And he said you were dead in the, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I think when you hear that, sometimes when we use the language of sin and sinners, we primarily think about sin in terms of our actions, in other words, we, we think about the, the things that we do that are bad, and, and that is certainly part of sin. But the way the Bible primarily uses sin is, is not primarily to talk about our actions. It's to talk about our condition. It, it's not just what we do that makes us sinners. It's, it's who we are. Another way to put it is, is we're not sinners because we, we commit sin. It's actually the other way around. We, we commit sin because we are sinners. And that's a big difference. And what Paul is, is showing us is that our, that our condition naturally, dark backdrop of which we lie on our own, is that of death. He tells us that we're walking in certain ways. I, I want you to pick up on that language because we're going to come back to it at the end. He says, you once walked this way. He says, you followed the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, he says, you uh, walked in, according to the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, what he's saying is, is you, you, you not only lived according to the, to the world's standards, you know, according to their uh, convictions and their compelling ways of living, uh, which is in opposition to God. You also followed, you walked around with the prince of the power of the air. That, that's a very clear reference to the enemy, the, uh, Satan, the one who has ultimately rebelled against God. 
And then it says that you followed your own flesh, your own desires. Paul uses this word, uh, sarks in the Greek. It's for flesh. It's, it's kind of the physical aspect of it. But it's so much more than, than just physical. It's that condition that our hearts are inclined towards sinning because that's who we are naturally. And so when we talk about being saved, we, um, we think we're saved from a number of things. We think, we think we're talking about being saved from the world or, or from the devil, Satan, or from our flesh, but, but it's actually something much bigger. Um, I haven't had you know, the unfortunate diagnosis of a, of a poor health diagnosis, but if, if you go to the doctor, we'll just use a hypothetical situation, if you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you, you have a disease, you're extremely sick, but there's a cure for it. There's a couple of responses that you, that you can that you can choose. One of the responses would be that of denial. You can say, well, I don't really believe in all that disease stuff, right? Like, yeah, other people might have that, but not me. And you kind of go the way of denial. And, and if you go that route, you know you're, you're going to be in, in a poor, poor condition if you don't, if you don't listen to the doctor. The, 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 the way of denial is actually what irreligious people do. Right? They say, Adam, you're talking about all this sin and all this badness and all this dark stuff. I don't I don't really believe in that. Like, if you want to believe that, that's fine. It's denial. It's, it's irreligion. Uh, another, another response could be, could be disillusionment. It could be that, okay, well, some people might have that disease, but I, I don't have that disease. Like, I don't feel it in me. I feel pretty, I feel all right. This was just a routine checkup. I don't have that problem. Other people might have that problem. Not me. You're disillusioned. The third response would be one of reality. You would say, okay, doctor, I trust your expertise and everything that you've done to survey my condition, and I know I'm sick, and I rejoice that there's a cure for it, right? You respond with this sense of rejoice because he said you're sick, but he also said there was a cure for it. See, Christianity is just like that. This passage is telling us some terrible things about us, who we really are when we're left to ourselves, but but it doesn't leave us there. Um, I use the, I think when you may have heard me say we are saved from God, at least I'm hoping you're thinking, wait a minute, we're, we're saved from God. Well, I don't get that. Let me flesh this out for you because if you look at the end of verse 3, it tells us what are the results of the way we've been walking. I'll read it again, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the great equalizer that it's, that it's by nature, by the very things that we do and by the very people that we are, that we're children of wrath. In other words, that we are worthy of judgment. That God in all of his holiness and majesty can judge us. And there is nobody that escapes that. It's the entirety of, hum of mankind. If you hear that and you say something along the lines of, I don't like the idea of a God of wrath. I don't like that. It doesn't sit on me right. It sounds wrong. I've heard about a loving God, not this wrath-filled God. Let me, let me kind of tease that idea out for you because I would say that you cannot have a loving God unless you have a wrathful God. And here's why. If my boys were at the playground, I have two boys, six and four. If they're at the playground and they begin to get bullied by somebody, and I'm watching this go down. And these are maybe some older kids. This is a, a scenario. It hasn't gone down yet. But these are some older kids. And, 
and maybe they start getting physical, and they, they, they're, they're pressing my, my boys into harm, physical harm. Um, would I be loving if I were not to intervene? In other words, if this injustice that is occurring and is hurting people I love, would it not be right of me for, for some sort of wrath and anger to rise up within me? Now, I'm not going to pummel these kids, you know, but it's just an analogy. But, but the idea is that love, my love for my boys, incites anger in me when I see something bad happening to them. The same thing is true of God. That he, when he saw us in our condition, was incited with rage, wrath, and anger because of his love for us. When we think of God's wrath, we should think of his love. When you realize that you need to be saved from God, the only place to go is actually to God. Um, do you know who Jesus hung out the most with? What kind of people? The, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the sinners. Do you ever ask yourself why? I mean, because he, he made it very clear that everybody needed him. Like, it wasn't because certain people were in a condition that, that they couldn't help themselves, and so he went to the worst kinds of people, and then, and then the righteous, the religious type of people, they could kind of figure it out on their own. He actually went to the sickest people because they knew their need for him. And so it was always the righteous and the religious that never saw their need for a savior. They always rejected him. They're the ones that put him to death. But it was the sinners who saw their condition and they saw what he came to offer them. Jesus said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but have come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus was not categorizing people as though some didn't need him and others did. What he was saying was that everybody needs him and only some will see that. When you see the helplessness of your condition, being utterly lost, unable to change anything about it on your own, that's when you know you're on the path to freedom. That's when you know that you're on the path to finding the God of the Bible and what it means to be saved from him. Let's look at, secondly, what it means to be saved by God. Uh, there are very few two-word uh, phrases that can change your life. Uh, a couple of them that I came up with, I do, that'll, that'll change your life real quick. Uh, I'm pregnant, that, that'll do it. Uh, you're fired, that, that, that one's going to change your circumstances. I quit, there's another one. I'm, I'm sure there are many more. But there are very few two-word phrases that really can change everything about you. Verse 4 gives us two of the sweetest words in Scripture. But God. But God are two of the sweetest words you will ever hear in the Bible. Because God, seeing us in our helpless condition, did not forsake us. It says that, because, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Two of the sweetest words. This, this is just loaded with his mercy. In other words, not getting what we deserve, the wrath and the justice that were coming our way. His love, the, the ultimate affirmation and acceptance that we all want and long for. His grace, that's getting what we don't deserve. Namely, that acceptance and that love. And when does it tell us he loved us? Was it, was it when we cleaned up our act? 
or was it, you know, when we started going to church regularly, or was it when we started having regular, you know, allotted times of devotion and prayer? Well, no. It says it was when we were dead in our trespasses, when, when in fact we had nothing to contribute to it is the very place when God would show us his love, his mercy, and his grace. So what does it mean to be saved by God? Well, the passage tells us, it says that we were made alive together with Christ, the, the dichotomy from death to life, that when we could have nothing to offer them, he gave us everything, that, that when we were dead, when we were you know, nailed by our judgment, that he came and he gave us new life, that that there was a change, that there was this, this new desire, that life was found in Christ. It, it says that he raised us up with him. In other words, that it wasn't just Jesus who rose bodily for our sins, but, but it was us united to him by faith that get that very new life. It tells us that he seated us with him. Do you know who sits down? People that are finished working. And so the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God tells us the work is done. And us believing by faith that that work is our work, it's finished. We're sitting with Jesus in the heavenly places. And so why did he do all of this? Was it, was it out of obligation? Was, was God, because of his creation and, and the mess that had gone awry, was, was he under some sense of duty to do this for us? Well, no. Verse 7 tells us why he did this. It's the so that statement in verse 7, and it's this. Let me read it again. It's so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. You see, in salvation, God gets all the credit. He gets it all from beginning to end, from start to finish. And in doing that, he invites us to rejoice in him. And it tells us, the Bible tells us that it will take forever for us to mine the depths of God's kindness to us. And so what we do here on a weekly basis is merely a, it's a rehearsal of sorts. It's a glimpse into the forever. That, that his riches are so deep and so wide that we cannot explore them for 10,000 years, for 30,000 years. It will take forever for us to begin to understand the riches of his kindness. When you realize that you're saved by God, that he gets the entirety of the credit, only then will you stop trying to save yourself. Do you know that you're, you're doing that constantly? We're all doing that constantly. How, how do we try to save ourselves? There, there's a variety of ways. We, we do it through fervent religious activity. I mean, church attendance, we think that somehow that will, that will make us right. Or we think that maybe if we're involved in every single activity that any church in the entire city offers, like, like you are just hopping all over from event to event and study to study, that somehow that fervor is going to, to muster up God's favor. We, we think that that's going to save us. Or maybe, maybe your particular way is a little less religious. 
We, we try to make ourselves clean in all kinds of ways. We eat clean, we work out, we, we dress clean, we live clean. Those are attempts to save ourselves. We sometimes, for some of us, we, we try to punish ourselves. Right? The more miserable we are maybe in life, maybe then God will f somehow you know, favor us or pity us. So we, we punish ourselves. We take things away from us. We, we serve out of just this sense of slavery, like this is what God wants me to do. We kind of drudge along in it. We punish ourselves, and we think that that's going to save us. Well, the passage tells us what is required to be saved, and it's faith, belief. And lest you think that somehow in yourself you can do that, God removes that too, verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this refers to both faith and grace. In other words, what is required of you to be saved? Well, you must believe. And guess what? You can't even believe without God's help. And so in that statement, God is removing every ground for boasting and working your way to salvation. It's utterly gone. You cannot walk away from this passage thinking that somehow you can save yourself. Christianity requires us to do one main thing, and it is this. It is to see that we are no better than anybody else, and we are helpless without a Redeemer. It requires us to transfer everything that we're trusting in and to transfer it all to Jesus and what he's done for us. That's what it means to be saved by God. Let's thirdly look at what it means to be saved for God. Uh, the Olympics are here. You guys, somebody, everybody been watching them all weekend, right? I, I haven't had a chance quite to sit down and, and binge watch the Olympics. It's coming, though. It's coming. Uh, my boys and I, I think this afternoon, are going to watch some Olympics. But, you know, the, the fervor of the Olympics, it kind of, it, it just, it gives us something good in, in a season of bad right now that we're in. And um, one of the things that's popped up, uh, this, is a, this is an old reference to the Olympics. In the 92 Barcelona events, you may or may not remember this, it's kind of been resurfacing itself. There was, there was a race, with his name was uh, Derek Redman, I believe. Yeah, Derek Redman in Barcelona. This man was a, a sprinter, he was running, and in the middle of his race, he pulled up, his hamstring had popped, and he was, he was done. He was limping through it. And he continues on in the race, just kind of limping. Obviously, the, the runners are dumb, but he wants to finish this race that he started. And the video shows us that uh, someone comes out of the crowd to help him. And, you know, security kind of fends them off, and they say, you know, no, you, you, can't, you can't help him. And, he, and, he, and you can just kind of read his lips. He says, I'm his dad. I'm his dad. Let me help him. And, um, and this man comes out of the crowd and he takes his son, who inevitably has been training incredibly hard for this race, and he, he essentially carries his son to the finish line. And his son, like, doesn't want him to do it, and he, but he does it, and he brings his son to the finish line. And many of the people think that the moral of this story is you never give up, right? Like, this, this man was limping to the end, and, and he got some help, but he never gave up. He pushed through. And that's, that's actually not the moral of the story, the moral of this story was that the father will carry you when you can't carry yourself. This man took his son and he carried him when he could no longer carry himself. You see, Christianity 
shows us that when strong men are brought to weakness, that's when the Father's love carries them. Uh, The good news is not just that God gets us close to the finish line. It's not just that he, he, he somehow just shows us his love and he expects us to maintain it. It's not saved by grace and kept by works. Verse 10, though it on the surface could sound like this alternative way of keeping right with God through good works is actually the exact opposite. The good news is that we're not only saved by grace, but we're kept by grace. Uh, I think it's actually found in the word workmanship. In verse 10, Paul uses the word workmanship from which we get our word poem. Uh, We are his poem would be an alternative reading. In other words, God is saying that the narrative of our lives is a poem that God's writing. And it's the poem of grace, that, that he has not only rescued us from himself, by himself, but he's done it for himself. You are a walking poem of God. Every single individual, God is writing your story, and he's the hero. That's, that's the bottom line, that he's the hero. Uh, I told you to, to remember the language of walking in verse 1. Verse 1 began with showing us how we formerly walked, and verse 10 now concludes by showing us how we walk with God. It's, it's the bookends, the beginning and the end of this passage. It's the way that Paul wants us to phrase it, that, that we previously walked this way, and now we walk this way. When you realize you're saved for God, only then will you discover your real purpose. I mean, it, if you know that God has done everything required to get to you, how will that change the way you live your life? Like, if you know that, that he is not this, this mandating, you know, judge who's just, he's just waiting to drop the shoe on you, right? Do you ever live that way? Like, like God, I screwed up again, God. Like, I messed up again. When are you going to drop the shoe? You know, when are you going to come down on me? And he never does. Because the shoe already dropped on another. The shoe dropped on Jesus. The, the, the crushing blow was put to Jesus and not to you. If you know that God is carrying you through the finish line to bring you to himself, how could that change your perspective in life? I think Christians think that God only uses elite athletes when the truth is he uses broken ones. That this passage is showing us that God wants us to come to an end of ourselves. The self-righteousness, the, the smug judgment that we think that somehow we've mustered our favor with God. You know, the, the acts of religion that we think that everybody just sees us polished, but it's really pretend. God uses the broken ones, not, not the elite. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope some of these claims are new to you and maybe even stunning to you. The fact that a God could see someone dead and make them alive. And, and our prayer as a church is that, that maybe, maybe even today that would happen. Like there's nothing magical about becoming a Christian. It's, it's not necessarily 
this mountaintop experience, but, but there is some point in your life which you must come in, to an end of yourself, that you must see that you cannot save yourself. Humanity is incredibly lost and everything about us is decaying. And God is incredibly loving and everything within him is pursuing people like that. Death is defeated. Life is discovered in those two simple words today, but God. So there is everybody in this room, everybody that's joined us today sits on one side of those words. You're either in the first three verses of but God or in, you're in the latter, three verses, or the latter four verses of but God. You are either dead or you're alive. You're either working or you're resting. You're either saved or you're not. And so would you consider that an invitation today? Which side of but God do you fall on? Let's pray. Father, it's, uh, it's humbling for us to explore how good you are to us. Lord, I, I know I find it hard to believe. Lord, that someone as good as you could love someone as bad as me. That someone is broken and hurt as sinful and dirty as me could be loved as a God who is perfect and loving and kind and that you were so loving that you willingly came in the flesh and you took the wrath that should have come my way. Lord, we, we struggle to believe it, but we look at your word and we see that we're saved from you and by you and for you, and Lord, we want that to change us. So Lord, I pray that, that even today, should there be any here who don't believe that and um, you're stirring belief in them, Lord, I pray that you would give them that gift, uh, that you would grant faith today um, to believers and unbelievers alike, and that you would help us to leave this place rejoicing in a God who could love people like us. And so Lord, we thank you for meeting us, we thank you for your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.